Am I still omniscient? You're still a little louder, but it's it's less apparent now. Less obnoxious. Yeah, Would, I think we can get through this pretty easily. The person with the poorest sounding audio is the loudest. <laughs> <laughs> this wasn't set up for this world. I relied no, on you're, Jeremy. You're perfect for America. Yeah, exactly. I'm a representation <laughs> of America. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman. I'm joined by my regular co-host, collector of quadraphonic record needles, Peter Cook. I got four of them. (laughs) That's it so far? Not coming up in the wild like they used to? Not like they used to, no. That's a shame. Different world out there now. And then... (laughs) <laughs> and then we're, of course, joined by my other regular co-host, spokesman for the former cult leaders, now in permanent hiding, public relations consultants, Jeremy Ruggles. Hello. It's been uh, a busy time of year for me. A lot going on in that world. I got nothing else to say. <laughs> yeah, a lot, of, a lot of cults going around today. <laughs> and then we have... Our special guest for this episode, inconclusive, coin flip, conflict resolutionist, Taylor Rowley. Why does it have to be heads or tails? Why can't it be both? (laughs) See, I'm not good at this job. I'm going to be fired. (laughs) (laughs) Ushering in a new era of coin flips. Yes. Everybody wins. All right. Well, Taylor, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself real quick before we start talking about this record you've picked out? Sure. Um, My name is Taylor Rowley. I am an L.A.-based music supervisor for film and television and a longtime radio host. I've hosted a radio show since 2003 up until last year. It was broadcast on KXLU 88.9 FM, which is a college radio station here in Los Angeles. And uh, now it broadcasts on an internet radio station called NTS Radio, which is based in London, but has studios all over the world, which is great. And you can hear that every Thursday, well, every first or second Thursday of of every month. Yeah, it's just every four weeks. It's hard to keep track which one, but yeah. And that's about it. And what's the... What's the name of the radio show? Oh, it's called The Windmills of Your Mind. Nice. And that's the one with the uh, Dorothy Ashby theme song. Yes, it is. It's the best version, I think. Perfect. We recently name dropped her in an episode, and I had stated that that is a name to look for, not only uh, of her own records, but any side work she's done. It's kind of impossible to find a bad record that she's worked on. Yeah, she's incredible. Absolutely. If her records were cheaper, I would have she would have been in in the running for, you know, a suggestion for this show for me. But um yeah, yeah you can't find those at thrift stores anymore or at all. No, and they they just keep going up in price online yeah. too, but Yeah. And looking through your IMDb page, 
I see that you were assistant supervisor on two shows from the last few years that I've really enjoyed, Pen15 and Everything Sucks. Yeah, that's true. IMDb is right. And those are both really great shows. I grew up in the 90s, so um, a lot of those songs that we put in those shows were, you know, um, took me back in good ways and bad. (laughs) But yeah, but it's it's really fun to work on both of those. For everything... Everything Sucks. I was the target demographic for that show because it was my teenage years <laughs> as well. Yeah, yeah totally. And then um, Pen15, I'll just plug that now. We'll be back. The first half of it will be back. First half of the second season will be back in the fall. Excellent. Yeah, so check that out. Cool. What'd you bring us? Well, I am, I'm very excited about the record you have for us today. If you want to tell us real quick what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the episode. Yeah, we are going to be talking about Minnie Ripperton's second album from 1974 entitled Perfect Angel. Nice. And let's go ahead and just start with a track. Which one should we start with? Let's just start it from the top, shall we? Uh, With her song Reasons. Perfect. This whole album just keeps growing on me more and more as me I'm too. listening to it. I've it's been so warm. Doing more of a deep dive this week. Yeah, that song surprised me. I didn't expect such a rocker. Well, that's the thing about this record, and why I think it it was hard to market until the success of the hit single, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, was that it's kind of all over the place in terms of genre. It's rock and it's pop and it's soul. I know that when I read the Wikipedia for this record, that it said that that song was a 
favorably received by rock stations, but that the R&B stations didn't know what to do with it. Oh, yeah. I can see that. Yeah. But I think it's outstanding. And her voice on that, I mean, ugh, like I just can never get over that whistle register that she has and how long she can sustain a note in that range. And it's not gimmicky either. I mean, there have been other singers in music history that have had a crazy vocal range. And sometimes it's used artistically, but often they just capitalize on that gimmick. And you don't really get that feel with many Ripperton. No, it's so natural. Yeah. She was definitely a complete artist. It always serves the song. And then she does those, you know, multi-track harmonies with it at points on this Mm -hmm. record that are just flawless. Yeah. I don't think people... Like when Mariah Carey did that, people would say she was calling the dolphins. And I don't think you could say that of <laughs> Minnie Ripperton. No, I don't think. Well, Mariah Carey so. supposedly started doing that because of hearing Minnie Ripperton at a young age. Yeah, ah. that's completely obvious. Um, but yep. but yeah, I, I would say it's much more gimmicky when she does it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> We're not going to hate on Mariah, are we? No, I li- I, I didn't mean to. <laughs> Um, All right, guys. No, I, I didn't mean to take us down that road. It's kind of like when I was really into Tori Amos in the 90s, and then I finally listened to Kate Bush, and I was like, oh, okay. Uh, you know what I mean? But it's like, I still like Tori, but it's just, it be- yeah. you know what I mean? It just became, like, I liked Mariah Carey growing up, and it's the same thing. And then I heard Minnie Ripperton late, much later in my life, and was like, I like them both, but I just see where the latter got it from the former. Yeah, Tori Amos heavily represented on Everything Sucks, by the way. Uh, yeah. Corn girl, <laughs> cornflake girl represent. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to know, what is everybody's uh, personal history with this record specifically? Uh, Taylor, you want to start us off? Well, I... Well, okay. This is kind of embarrassing. But the first time I that I can recall hearing Loving You, unless I heard it and didn't register it was it was in a burger king commercial in like 1996 (laughs) nice yeah it was like you know they were doing like a close-up of like cinnamon buns or like a whopper or something and they were playing this song and um it was meant to be funny but um that's the first time i recall hearing it but i loved it (laughs) and but i didn't know who sang it until way later um but actually actually got into this record after i heard her band the rotary connection which i was really into in college are you all familiar with that band yeah we yeah the, yep. we featured their christmas before. album oh yeah the one with the weird santa on it the hippie yeah. santa <laughs> yep. um but yeah i mean i just loved loved those albums when i was in college and uh i just sort of started piecing together that that was the same Minnie Ripperton that was saying that song. I was a big fan of her first record called Come to My Garden. And then I, um, or Come to the Garden. I think it's Come to My Garden. And uh, then I found this record at a thrift store. And I mean, you uh, if you flip past this one, I don't know what's wrong with you. Just, I mean, simply buy it for the cover. The cover is, we were saying this before, that, I mean, it's just... It's so good. Like, I mean, I just feel like it's so representative of everything that's inside music-wise. Like, you know, she's so sweet, but it's like really sexy, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And I just think that that pretty much sums up her music. Yeah, she she definitely seems not afraid to live in both worlds. You know, she never tried to present herself as a one-dimensional artist, either visually or musically. Yeah, exactly. Um, What about you three? Well, my story's not very good, so I'll I'll get mine out of the way because oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's not very good. 
I've definitely seen this album around. I guess I'm one of those fools that's, I don't know if I've flipped past it, but I've definitely never listened to it until the last week or so. And I have been missing out. Why did I put on that Kinks record or that <laughs> Weezer record for the thousandth time when I could have been putting this on, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, you know, obviously I knew Loving You, but aside from that, it's all new to me. And whew, it's a instant, an instant classic. Yeah. And that's the fun thing about record collecting and even, you know, bargain bin diving is that even after decades, you can still find this seemingly essential music. Um, and you know, everybody has approached music and record collecting from different angles of familiar with some stuff and ignorant on others. And it's, you know, it's a journey that never has to end. Yeah. And I live for that. I mean, the older I get, you know, the more I want to find something that I, you know, feel like I've been missing all my life. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good mm -hmm. feeling. Jeremy, what about you? You made me buy it. <laughs> me? Not the first it, record I've made you buy. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, Sean sells records and... I like go to his house and hang out in the before times and he'd like just put stuff on like the same way they do in a record store where they like kind of size you up and they like put something on so you'll ask about it and then buy it. And he just does that like hyper personalized to me <laughs> as if we're in a record store together. And this is one that he put on. He got me into Rotary Connection before this and then put on this and Denise Williams, and I think I got them both at the same time. Well, did you know that Denise Williams sings back up on this record? I did, and now that it's been invoked, I can share with you another story <laughs> from Diva Stories, Season 2, Episode 4, <laughs> Denise Williams talking about how she met Minnie Ripperton in the recording of this album. She's singing backups with, uh, she was brought on by a producer to be named later, foreshadowing for the audience there. Minnie invites Denise and some other people over to her house and she's making some stew. And uh, Minnie like leaves the kitchen and like Denise goes back into the kitchen for something and spots Minnie Ripperton's dog eating the stew out of the bowl, uh -huh. but like just lets it happen and just leaves the kitchen and doesn't say anything, <laughs> and then just let Minnie serve the stew uh, that the dog had been eating out of, but Denise herself wouldn't eat it. Wow. <laughs> I don't know what to think. Is this a sitcom or something? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, that, that feels like a plot from Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, or like that's... <laughs> That Seinfeld episode, I'm trying to think of which one. Yeah, I was just yeah. going to say where Jerry's like shaking his head like really fast and his girlfriend's trying to offer him yeah. something to eat and he just won't because he knows. Poppy wouldn't wash oh, his Poppy hands. Oh, Poppy wouldn't wash his hands. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Denise, that's so mean. Was she just intimidated by Minnie and she just didn't want to embarrass her or? I think she just didn't know what to do because Minnie had like been spending a long time making this delicious stew and she didn't want to like ruin it for like all the guests oh, and everybody man. there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, great, great story. <laughs> as someone who often gets confused as to what to do in social settings, I can definitely relate to that. <laughs> yeah. So my personal history with this record, I've, as Jeremy has said, I've been a Rotary Connection fan for a very long time. And I think I mentioned on the Christmas episode that when I was 
first listening to Rotary Connection in like high school, a lot of the the whistle register vocals from Minnie Riperton I thought were a theremin until eventually like getting into Minnie Riperton's <laughs> solo career. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and her records, so we need to probably state this. These are not technically the records that belong in the show format because on Discogs, these are, you know, 20 plus dollar records in good shape. However, they are easier than normal to find in dollar bins. I believe I've found all of my mini Ripperton records in dollar bins, and we can get into like more reasons why that is later on. But uh, the first solo record I got of hers is actually her third record from 75, Adventures in Paradise, which is maybe still my favorite record of hers, probably because it's the most like soul jazz oriented. And when I first got Perfect Angel, I didn't like it as much. I was a little turned off by how much of a rock element is on here. Taylor, you had said that you want to do either her first or second record. and I still don't own her first record. So Perfect Angel yeah. became the selection. And I've really enjoyed digging into this a lot more in the past week. Me too. We were saying before, um, I'll just repeat it, but I'm a big Rotary Connection fan. And then I got into her first record, which is Come to My Garden. Um, and that one is... Still more in the vein, I say, as Rotary Connection. It's got that real, like, orchestral, sweet kind of vibe to it, uh, really sweeping. But I bought this record because of the cover and because of Loving You. And I've listened to it several times. Well, yeah, but not, like, actively, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And this past week, I've been listening to it a couple times a day leading up to this. And I just think it's so great. Definitely. It, it's grown on me very me quickly. Um, yeah. And I, I really appreciate the rock elements now, especially learning more about, you know, the statement she was trying to make and who she was as a person and the fact that she initially wanted to be an opera singer and was not really intending on being a soul or pop singer. Right. I don't think I knew that she co-wrote almost every single song on this album. Mm hmm. Ah, I was wondering. I didn't, Which is amazing. I didn't get a chance to look at the yeah, credits, but I was wondering if she had penned a lot of the tunes. Yeah, she did every one but two, which I don't know if we want to lead into the next track with this. Sure. Are we yeah. ready for that? Okay, Let's do that. So, so we're going to hear a song called Take a Little Trip. And Oh, yeah. This one is great. This one was not written by many. Let's see if you can tell who it was written by, and the reveal will come after we listen. Nice. <laughs> I'm up for the challenge. I was hoping you were going to do the pro LSD self-help song. <laughs> yeah. This is written by Timothy Leary. <laughs> <laughs> You're the one who always wants to 
promise I did not look this up. I would put money on that having been penned by Stevie Wonder. Well, ding, ding, ding. Um, he did write that song, and it sounds so much like a Stevie Wonder song. Yeah, um, those changes yeah, are just unmistakable. Totally. And so, funny story about this. So, about uh, him being his involvement in this record. So he was a fan of Minnie Ripperton's. And so when they decided to do a record, she asked him if he would produce it for her and play on it. But he was already committed to doing a record of his own on a different label, Motown, and she was signed to Epic. So he wasn't, he was afraid he wouldn't be able to, they wouldn't let him do it. So he performed and produced it under a pseudonym. So yeah, so he's playing electric piano on that. And so, and he wrote it. That was fine, I guess, that, you know, he was credited as a writer. But, but yeah, he produced the whole, co-produced the whole thing along with her husband and co-songwriter um, Richard Rudolph. And yeah, that song and Perfect Angel, the title track he wrote. But that one just leaps out as a Stevie Wonder song to me. Absolutely. The deluxe version of the CD reissue I, I heard today has a duet of them doing that song, Take a Little Trip. And it's... I just started laughing just because it's it's just so completely obvious, but such a good song. Yeah, and apparently uh, her and Stevie were very close for the rest of her life. Like like you said, he'd always been a big fan of hers. And from what I understand, Minnie and her husband were not aware that Stevie was such a big fan of her music. And when they got the epic record deal in 73 and were working on a record, they decided that their number one pick for a producer was Stevie Wonder. And they went to L.A. to find him and convince him to do this record. And he was just instantly like, oh, I'm a huge fan. I would love to do that. Wow. And then, yeah, like you said, he, that's why he went through all the trouble of doing, doing it under that. a pseudonym. Yeah. yeah. And then he actually arranged the whole record as well. Mm-hmm. And um, his band at the time is basically the whole backing band on this record. Yeah. I was also reading that his 1974 album... What's it called? It's called Fulfilling This First Finale. Um, Yeah, yeah, that came out just a month after her album came out. Hers came out in August 74 and his in September 74. And she sings backup on one of the songs called Creepin' on that record. So they must have just been kind of sharing the band um, during that time. I read an interview with Richard Rudolph. And he was talking about the recording of this album and their journey to get Stevie to produce it. And she, Minnie Ripperton, actually laid down that background vocals to creep in like the day they met. Stevie was just like, hey, come sing this. And uh, she laid it down. 
now that I'm reminded of this, I, maybe our other Los Angeles buddy, Trevor Coleman, mentioned this in brief on our Stevie Wonder episode. Oh, that he worked with Minnie Ripperton. I yeah. believe he did mention that. Yeah. Yeah. This is like jumping ahead a little bit in the timeline, but one thing I saw as well was that uh, when Minnie was in the hospital at the end of her life, Stevie wrote a song specifically for her. And as far as I know, the only time he ever performed it was in the hospital room to Minnie and her husband. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. I thought that was very special. That is very special. They seem to have a really close friendship. Mm hmm. Are you going to say why she was in the hospital? Or are you going to oh, save it? Oh, I was going to save it for the end. Yeah. But <laughs> um, yeah, let's do that to not cast a, a pallor over the rest of the record, if that's okay. Sure. Okay. Do we want to go through some biographical information with Minnie then? Yeah. So she was born in Chicago, right? Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yes, in Chicago, of course, in 1947. And she was one of eight siblings, and she was always performing as a child. And she, as one of you said, that she was trying to be an opera singer. She did end up being in kind of a northern soul girl group in the early 60s called The Gems, who went on to perform under a few different names, uh, mostly doing, they released a few 45s, but mostly did session work. Most notably, they were her girl group did the backup vocals for that song Rescue Me by Fontella Bass. Yeah. You know that song? Oh, wow. And uh yep. classic. Yeah, so good. And so then after that in nineteen sixty seven, she started she joined the Rotary Connection and she was just the receptionist at Chess Records who put those records out. Am I right? Well the the gems were basically the house vocal group for chess okay. records at that point. Okay. Yeah, that's how they got on the Fontella Bass song, and they're also doing background vocals on some Etta James tracks and some Bo Diddley songs, and a lot of the artists that needed female backing vocal groups during like the mid-60s on Chess pretty much had Minnie Ripperton and the Gems on it. Wow, I didn't know Hot damn. it was that extensive, but that's very cool. Yeah, yeah. and the other thing I want to jump in there too with uh, the Rotary Connection, there's a name involved with that group that has been mentioned on the show a couple times charles stepney mm-hmm. you guys remember him peter and jeremy a little bit not as much as phil upchurch <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was gonna mention that before minnie ripperton is one of those artists that has like deep ties to this podcast specifically a lot of the people she's worked with we've done episodes oh, on, wow, so okay. it, it makes sense that we would eventually do a minnie ripperton episode but Charles Stepney was a member of the Rotary Connection and handled most of their production. He was responsible for that very, like, string-oriented sound. Mm-hmm. He also produced her first record, right. My Garden, which is why they have a similar sound. But uh, Charles Stepney also was a member of Earth, Wind, and Fire and oh. was responsible for changing their sound to a more string-based production in the mid-'70s. And then uh, Charles and Maurice White started their production company together. Well, hot damn. <laughs> yeah, Maurice was like the house drummer kind of for chess, wasn't he? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they would have yep. they would have been friends at that point. Well, cool. Most likely. <laughs> so so yeah, so she was in the Rotary Connection and they were very avant garde for the for the time. They put out like six records, I think. And then she recorded her first one. And Charles Stepney did orchestrate that record. It has Sony strings on it, so that all make, checks out. 
And then we're back to Perfect Angel, which came out in 74. And she had been semi-retired at that point. I think maybe she was, well, she had just had a child in those years between um, the ending of, or the, her first and second record. I don't know if it's because she decided just to take care of her kid, or maybe she was just kind of getting bummed out about the project she was in not really going anywhere. In any case, someone heard a demo tape, and that's a, of some song that I can't recall right now, but she, um, and that's how we, she came back into the studio to record this record, Perfect Angel. Yeah, the, the story I'd heard from Richard Rudolph in the uh, the unsung documentary about Minnie Riperton is he was saying that they, they partly went into retirement because of the lack of success from her first record, but they were also just really happy raising their new kids, like you said, and that they had been writing all these songs together during that time period and knew that they were going to make a record again, but just weren't really worried about the timeline. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, the, the person that submitted the demo... I believe grew up in Chicago or had spent time there and had actually seen Rotary Connection and been a fan of hers. And then when he finally ascended the ranks enough at Epic Records to be able to submit demos, that was his first choice. Was like, we gotta find the singer from the Rotary Connection and make her famous. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, that reminded me a little of Josh White that we talked about how he kind of retired away from music and somebody that had heard him was like, this is too good. Like you have to come back and make music. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, should we do another, another track? The big one? Sure. All right. Yeah. Let's play a big one. Well, this is her biggest hit. We'll talk about it after the break, but I just think it's one of the most like intimate pop songs of all time. Definitely. Our listeners might know it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's sorry. It's called loving you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I couldn't remember if I said it or not. I was wondering if anybody was going to say it or if it was yeah, like, just going to be too obvious. Stay with me while we grow old. 
Those birds, though. Yeah, I love those birds. But I like, I love sound effects in any song. Do you guys know the story of the birds? Well, I heard I don't. that they- Roger McGuinn. <laughs> I heard that, or I read that, they were added afterward, but, or that the recording, like, the recording picked it up, and then they add, they kind of, like, went for it and added more. From what I read with the Richard Rudolph interview is that there was a bird in the original demo mm-hmm. that they uh, were working on because they just left the window open. And they'd tried like a few different arrangements with this song. And Stevie just decided he was going to do it like the demo because that's how it sounded best. So... That's Richard playing the guitar, and then Stevie added the Rhodes on top, mm-hmm. and he really liked it, but he's like, it's missing something, but they didn't want to add drums and bass, and he's like, it's missing the birds. So they went out to like a conservatory with like a mobile tape rig, and I guess Minnie was like making really high-pitched sounds to get the birds to start calling. Wow. And then they just recorded the birds and added it to that song. That's incredible. Yeah, if anyone could harmonize, get the birds to harmonize with them naturally. <laughs> it's just it's just so perfect, the whole story. She sounds like a fairy tale Sleeping Beauty princess who can like can, <laughs> uh, talk to animals and stuff when she's yeah. singing that song. Anyway. Well, on top of that, you mentioned that, you know, she had kids and I read that she liked that this was based on a lullaby that she would sing to her daughter born in 1972. Yes. And that daughter is somebody of note. Yes. True. The, the comedian and actress Maya Rudolph. And musician. And musician. That's right. She, she does it all. I, I, she was first came to prominence as a member of the Rentals, one of the That's right. Weezer's, I forgot about Weezer's that. Uh, original bassist, Matt Sharp. That was his band. Wow. And she was in there with him, which, and then, yeah, went on to massive comedic turns on Saturday Night Live and in huge movies like Bridesmaids. Yeah. And, uh, what was the Mike Judge movie that she did? Idiocracy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I mean, she's huge and she's married to uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Yep. So, uh, oh, they're all oh, right. Know, they're not married. That, uh, okay. Richard Rudolph is technically Paul Thomas Anderson's father-in-law. Okay. Technically. Yeah, so. All right. I mean, I don't know what level of legality they <laughs> put to their relationship, but they seem they're to together. have been dedicated yeah. for a while. Okay. Yes. <laughs> to the point where Richard Rudolph claims Paul Thomas Anderson is <laughs> son-in-law. Fa- okay. son-in-law. Yeah. Yeah. When I noticed, she says Maya at the end of the song. Like she says her name a few times yeah. in, on the recording. Yeah. When, when I was younger, I mean, I didn't know, you know, who Maya Rudolph was. And I heard this song on a Burger King commercial in 1996. But <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't know that's what she was saying. I thought she was saying like, oh my, oh my, oh my, or something yeah, you, like that's that. That's exactly like, what I thought you know, too. And, and now I can't <laughs> unhear it. It it's clearly says Maya. Yeah. So I was reading today that this song was an accident, basically. So... They had eight tracks and Stevie Wonder wanted like one more so that it would increase the running time. And for whatever reason, he asked them like, what's the most embarrassing song that you've written? And then Minnie was like, oh, well, I have this song that I sing to my daughter sometimes. And they were like, it was like done. And then so she just like made some lyrical changes to it and it became loving you. But 
it has that lullaby element, but I mean, it's also extremely sexy. I don't know, right? Yeah, <laughs> it it was also accidentally a hit too. I know. Yeah, there was three singles that and none of them really got too much traction before this, and Epic Records was already like, well, that record's done. On to the next project. But Richard, who I don't know if we mentioned this, was a very successful producer and songwriter mm-hmm. before this. So he had a lot of sway with the label, and he convinced them that during the touring they'd been doing on this record, for some reason, the song Loving You was getting just like this crazy electric connection with the audience every time they performed it. So he used that as the basis of the argument, like, let's do a fourth single. I think if we put out Loving You, something will happen. And he said it was like just an instantaneous success once that song was released. That's amazing. I love stories yeah. of s- accidental hits and songs that almost weren't. Yeah, those are the best. <laughs> yeah, but I just really feel like that song just makes you like stop in your tracks. I don't know, like I'm just so in the moment when I listen to that song. It just feels like she's yeah. really just singing right at you. Supposedly there was a lot of label pressure later on to try and repeat that formula, but Minnie was never a person who wanted to do that. Every record she put out was you know, her continuing artistic statement and never trying to chase a hit. Mm-hmm. I feel like the song has, I see, think it might get like parodied or like spoofed or made fun of a lot, you know, just because it's so yeah. sincere and it's so, I mean, it's just so idiosyncratic and I would never call it, ever call it cheesy, but I mean, it could, but done by the wrong people, it could have been. But it's um, right. But you know, and it's just so ingrained in pop culture. Yeah, too. It's exactly. Been on so many soundtracks and commercials and everything. So people's relationship with this song is often, I think, divorced from the like artistic merit of it. They just know it as like, oh, that song that I've heard a bunch in various places, commercial. Yeah. Right, like in a like herbal essence, herbal essence commercial or something. Some woman like yeah, orgasmically right. washing her hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it really cheapens was- it. <laughs> There's an early episode of South Park where this song was like a key plot element, not this version of it, but someone singing it. I remember that from, mm. geez, that must have been the late 90s because I haven't watched oh that show God. in 20 years. I can hear that in my head. <laughs> like they, they couldn't hit the high note. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've heard some like friends of hers and, and Richard and people she worked with talk about how after her death, there seemed to be no effort on the music industry to push any song other than Loving You because it had been her only number one hit mm-hmm. and it was just hard to it was hard to market someone's B-sides when they had such a notable song. So that's why that's the one that gets licensed. You know, mm-hmm. any time that she's mentioned at all, if at all at this point, it's only in the context of that song and nothing else, which is kind of a shame. That's true. I think you're shortchanging Denise Williams' is, uh account but that's all right i I mean maybe it's just because of what i i do for a living i've noticed her song a couple other of her songs being used more recently but yeah i mean you're absolutely correct i mean that's it's it's really that one but her song uh le fleur just from her first record i think that was in what's that hbo show about the one about the guy who sells pot can't believe not weeds, obviously. No, that not was... weeds. That's Showtime. No, oh man, <laughs> what's it called? Oh, I can't believe I'm so mad at myself right now. But um, and then I think in I so- know which one you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's I not. I keep wanting to call it high fidelity, but that's not what it's called because that's another show. 
and movie before that. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, in any case, Quentin Tarantino did use her song Inside My Love on the Jackie Brown soundtrack. And I think. Oh, yeah. And it's great. That's a great soundtrack. Yeah, it's so good. But yeah, that's the big opus of Perfect Angel. Mm-hmm. What happened after this? Oh, yes. Yeah. So now we're at the sad story. So I guess after this record, she was diagnosed in around 76, I believe, with breast cancer. And it had metastasized and she had to have a a mastectomy. But it looked like she was going to pull through. But then unfortunately, she didn't. And she passed away in 1979 at age 31. It's incredibly tragic. And but she did more oh, sorry, I jumped way one, ahead. <laughs> no, that's. <laughs> and then she died right after this. No, um, she did. She recorded like maybe three more. Do we know? Yes. Yeah, there was three, three records that were released after her diagnosis, yeah. and the last one was a posthumous release that was made up of collaboration of like partial recordings she had done and that were finished by her friends and collaborators. Well, that one's called yeah. "Love Lives Forever." It came out in 1980. But the the other thing of interest around that is that her label and like management and industry insiders etc had tried to convince her to not make her illness public because at the time that was not a thing that many artists were allowed to do and supposedly uh, female artists were definitely pushed away from ever admitting an illness because supposedly then they couldn't use their like sex appeal to sell records and Minnie was obviously really not into that and against all of everyone else's supposed supposed better judgment immediately made a public statement on on the tonight show that that Mm -hmm. was what was going on and she was going to keep working and push through it as much as she could and it was a a lot of people have said it was a really powerful thing for her to deal with that in the public eye at the time and was very empowering for a lot of other people who have dealt with similar issues but yeah the, the doctor had given her six months to live in 1976 and she continued working touring performing on television releasing more records and was also the national spokeswoman for the american cancer society during their 78 to 79 yeah i I, awareness campaign i watched a like a psa from that time on you like with her on youtube today and it was really touching Mm -hmm. yeah she was a powerful impactful woman right till the very end for sure yeah, I'm just thinking about 79. Judy Sill died that same year. That's two absolutely out-of-this-world voices that we would have lost that year. And I think Sandy Denny was the year before. Late 70s, rough times. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Judy Sill and, I mean, and Minnie Ripperton, I mean, both, like, in their early 30s. Yeah, it's a, it's a tragedy. Yeah. So, yeah, from what I understand, her, her popularity kind of in some ways plummeted during the 80s um i mean everybody always knew her hit song but like i said the her label stopped trying to promote mm-hmm. you know her records after that there wasn't a lot of reissues or any kind of campaign to keep the catalog in print but she did experience a renaissance in the 90s and early 2000s due to her music being perfect hip-hop sample material everyone from tupac to tribe called quest has sampled her music yeah tribe specifically q-tip has said that like her music has been very important to him during his career and he's sampled her many times throughout his career and has like always been very inspired by 
her music. Mm-hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with the kind of value shift of her records. Like we talked about, like they're expensive online, but can be easy to find in dollar bins. And I, f- I think that if like you look closely at the Discogs sales data and stuff on this, like the value has even been going down online over the years because, you know, we're 40 years removed from when she was still alive and performing and promoting her own music. And we're, you know, at this point, 20 years removed from the like you know renaissance that she experienced mm-hmm. in her music so industry insiders and people involved with like hip-hop culture and djing and people who are you know avid record collectors they all hold her in high regard and there's countless musicians that are heavily influenced by her but you know the general public i feel like is all but forgotten about Minnie ripperton at this point which is sad but that's what this podcast is here for, trying mm-hmm. to shed a little more light on the, the deserving artist. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it blew my mind that I just learned that Maya Rudolph is her daughter. And I think if she was, if Minnie Ripperton was more of a conversation piece, then uh, I would have found that out much sooner. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think that's, that's a lot of the uh, ground that we had to cover there. Hopefully we've inspired some new listeners for Minnie Ripperton's back catalog. All of her records are really good. Uh, the later ones lean a little bit more into the disco era. So if mm-hmm. you're not into that, maybe go for the early stuff first. Taylor, do you have any closing thoughts? Closing thoughts? Um, I don't think so. I think we've covered it all about her. Sure. Don't sleep on Denise Williams oh, yes. either. Denise Pick up Williams, her records if you see Yeah, them. love the backup singers that become artists in their own right. Silly by Denise Williams is one of my favorite songs of all time. Do you have any other records along these lines that you can think of that someone might find on the cheap? That are, that are like Minnie Ripperton? Well, I know that's a, that's a <laughs> tough... Uh, <laughs> order right there but any other yeah I, you know we so I, I guess putting you on the spot a little bit we usually kind of try to think of uh, comparable artists or records that one might uh oh also look for okay well this is like the thrift store band to end all thrift store bands but and i i'm a huge massive fan of the carpenters and you can still find mm. all of those records you know for the for a dollar i you know, at the most, but Karen Carpenter yeah. is like one of the best singers of all time. And, and I, a great drummer. And a, oh my God, an incredible drummer. And I mean, those are some deep, dark songs. Like everybody kind of thinks of them as being, you know, pretty light and very, very white people. Like, but, um, but she can get real, real dark and tragic. And I mean, she's just, I love, I just love her. And yeah, I mean, so anytime you see a Carpenter's record, I would pick it up for sure. Yeah, I, they, they've been on my agenda to do or probably close to you or something like that. Mm-hmm. The last song on that album, I think it's called Another, Another song? song. Yeah, and it gets all experimental at the end. It's so yeah. good. Out of this world. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, Carpenter's Records, just to me, they're worth more than a dollar, but you can, they're always going to be a dollar. <laughs> yeah. If, if a record store has like a box of free records by the door, you can probably find a Carpenter's Record in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, a little bit more on the obscure side is a singer called Dory Previn, who was a songwriter for the movie. She wrote the theme to the Valley of the Dolls with her husband, Andre Previn. Oh, wow. And a bunch of other songs, mostly for the movies. But then she, in starting in the early 70s, she started recording her own songs. And they're very, very good and very interesting. But I always see them 
at the thrift store for a dollar and I just think people are sleeping on them. She looks weird. She has kind of, she has these big sort of aviator eyeglasses and she's older too. She's like in her fifties. So, and she's wearing, you know, has kind of a, kind of a weird tight perm. So she, she's not, it's not totally like what you're kind of like, what is this? But I just promise you, if you can, if you find Dory Previn records at the thrift store, you will not be disappointed. I'm intrigued. Yeah. And then, yeah, I've seen those around, but never played one. So now I know. Yeah. I picked up a live one because it intrigued me. And I really liked the songs, but like the performance was not great on mm. the whatever live one I got. Yeah, I don't know if I have that one. But. Great songwriter, yeah, she's though. she's an incredible songwriter. Dory Previn? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then other than that, I, I love soundtracks. You can find soundtracks usually for pretty cheap at thrift stores oh and then there's oh the bane of my existence which is laser discs that are masquerading as soundtracks and <laughs> and i always get so excited because i oh you know it'll be something where i'm like i had no idea this had a soundtrack and i'm like oh it's a laser disc and that's a stuntman a, that's, soundtrack. that's something to get excited about on its own laser discs i love laser discs but but yeah, yeah. I, that's always happening to me is where i think it'll they'll just get filed away with the records you know and um and yeah and then besides sure. that, like I love anything private press. I love even Christian records. Sometimes have a weird cut on there, and I'll, oh, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll yeah, I'll always give those a chance. And then I love school records, like acapella records and school band records. And I love like motel lounge acts and all that stuff is always available. If if it has a cover on it, then I usually buy it. Yeah, you know, John Olson uh, and Zane Johnny from Wolf Eyes was on our program and brought a gnarly christian record it was you yeah know, it can get just... real weird <laughs> and, and pr- particularly if it's a female singer she will sometimes sing about jesus as though they're in love and so <laughs> then you can just sort of disregard you know all the religious connotations and just enjoy it for that but yeah i love all that kind of stuff well thank you so much for uh, bringing this record and joining us yeah that was super fun thanks for inviting me yeah yeah I know we kind of got your plugs done at the beginning, but if you just want to repeat those for our listeners and anything else you can think of. Yeah, so I have a radio show on NTS Radio called The Windmills of Your Mind, and it's Windmills of <laughs> and it uh, streams every month. It's either the first Thursday or the second Thursday of the month, and then it's archived on my website, which is windmillsofyourmind.org. And then while I'm here... I would like to plug another project of mine um, called EXP TV, and it's a 24-7 online streaming channel that is all obscure film clips and TV ephemera and rare videos and stuff that we've found. Um, And you can look at that um, at EXPTV.org any time of day. Well, that sounds awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Well... Thank you for listening to another fine episode of this podcast. Thanks yeah. to our guest, Taylor. Oh, can and, I do the uh, outro on this yeah. song? Okay. <laughs> well, I wanted to say, so this is the song that I think might be the weakest link of the song, of the record. It's called, it's so nice to see old friends, but I wanted, I thought it was a good outro because for the times we're in, I have to admit, I was driving around here and listening to that song and was getting misty due to, you know, not being able to see so many people. during quarantine and um so yeah so this is a song called it's so nice to see old friends perfect well this has been i'd buy that for a dollar i'm peter cook i'm sean hartman i'm jeremy ruggles (laughs) and i'm taylor rowley we'll see you next week
here at I'd Buy That for a dollar appreciate your listenership. If you're one of those social media user types, please like or follow us. You can find us on both Instagram and Facebook. We'll hint in advance what album we'll be featuring on the next episode and also post about more Bargain Bin LPs you can find. There's always more. So we hope to see you on there, and we will definitely see you next episode. It won't be long. <laughs>